and chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, before Christmas, we had proceeded right up through the first five verses of this chapter, and we're going to pick up there this morning with verse number 6. And as I was thinking about this transition from the first five verses and its theme to verse number six, it's reminded of an observation made by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. He pastored the same church in Philadelphia from 1968 through his death in the year 2000. And he had these words to say on, in an introduction to his teaching Uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, he said, A person once said to me, If the devil is not able to destroy a Christian's witness by making him apathetic, he will try to do it by making him a fanatic. I believe, Pastor Boyce said, I believe it is true. In the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about failures which will render a Christian apathetic in regards to Christian service. They are the love of money and anxiety. Right Now, Pastor Boyce didn't pause here, but I want us to look back, since we've been out of this section a little bit, look back to chapter 6 and see what he's referring to. If you'll look at verse 24... No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? You cannot serve God and mammon or material treasures. All right, that's one of them. But then rolling right into verse number 25, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. And you have perhaps notes there from when we went through it, that exhortation is, don't be what? Don't be anxious. Don't worry about these physical and material provisions. So the first distraction, boy said, is the love of money. The second one, he said, was anxiety about our lack of material things. All right, he says... Um, the love of money and anxiety. If a Christian has his mind on these material things, either to accumulate them or to worry about them, he will not see God and hence cannot serve him. At this point, however, and now Pastor Boyce is referring to the transition from chapter 6 into chapter 7. He says at this point, chapter 7, Jesus goes on to show that there is also a type of zeal that can ruin a believer's witness. That is a zeal for, look at chapter 7, verse 1, the first word, a zeal for what? Judging others. It is also harmful because it can turn him into a sharp and unjust critic of his Christian brothers. And that is, without a doubt, the warning of those first five verses. I've come back to it again because we've been away so long, but... Jesus assumes that we all struggle with this tendency. And so he begins verse 1 with the admonition to judge not. And again, we noted last time that, uh, that the force of the grammar is to stop something already taking place. Right? The idea here is stop judging. He's recognizing we all struggle with it all the time. 
And the particular type of judging he has in mind, he portrays in verses 3 and 4. And if you remember, it really is quite ridiculous. The image is quite ridiculous. I mean, a man is so fixated on a speck of dust, remember, in the eye of his brother, while he's operating with what amounts to a large beam obstructing his own ability to see anything straight. But in that condition, he still wants to go ahead and kind of practice minor surgery, at least, on his brother's eye. And by painting this kind of a word picture, the the Lord, again, is confronting our tendency to exaggerate another person's issues. Right? About others, we tend to give the worst possible interpretation on what we're seeing in them. We presume to know their motives and that they are ill-intended. And we can be very quick to reach a conclusion about our brother while we kind of want to say about ourselves, well, I didn't mean it that way. And, and, you know, we give ourselves the best benefit of the doubt while we're exaggerating others. And that's the double standard in operation. And the opening of verse number five, the Lord calls it what? The Lord calls it hypocrisy. And, and Paul went on to warn in Galatians 5 that if we bite and devour one another, we better be careful because we could actually be consumed one of another. And for many smaller struggling churches, it's not just a struggle because of the community they minister in being so hard and contributing to their smallness, but in some of those churches there is actually a history of accentuating the defects of Christian brethren, even that they fellowship with, and in some cases, accentuating the defects of their leaders. And so they chase out one leader after another after another. And I would just say this, there's no shame in being small but faithful in the providence of the Lord. But there is some rightful shame in being small because of the tendency to be too judgmental with the imperfections of one another. That's the warning that is sounded in these first five verses. But with that warning sounded, all right, we do need to know that after Jesus, I mean, that's power. I would just say, I, I went back there to review so that we pick up, and in the review, the Lord dealt with me again, all right? But what's very interesting is in that review, Jesus uh, 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 after, after reviewing that and settling it, we roll right into verse number 6, and it's without any transition. Jesus goes on to <clears throat> exhort us in a different direction, and he actually assumes that we will be making judgment calls. That's remarkable, right? We've just been cautioned, judge not, stop a certain kind of judging. And then he goes without any break into assuming that we will be making judgment calls. What is he talking about here? Well, look at verse number 6. Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, if you're familiar with this, passage being in the bible you might not be shocked at this simple rereading of this expression and these multiple expressions but if you stop to think about it these words of jesus really are shocking okay he's not talking about 
dogs and pigs, he's talking about people. As if the people were what? Like dogs and pigs. He's actually referring to some people as dogs and some people as pigs. And if that isn't shocking enough, he actually says that we ought to withdraw ministering from certain people that are dogs and pigs. Now that's, I don't know what word you're going to use. I'm going to say it this way. That's pretty derogatory language. Wouldn't you say? And, and dogs in the Bible weren't domesticated. Okay, Bible times I'm talking about. They were kind of a scavenging, roaming animal. They were dirty and usually disdainful, and they were sometimes violent. A pig, to a Jew especially, was even worse. That's an abomination. And do you know this isn't the only place that Jesus used derogatory language to describe certain people? He actually referred to Herod as a what? Do you remember? as a fox. And he described the Pharisees as whited sepulchers and as a den or brood of vipers. So he's gone from dogs and pigs to a whole brood of snakes, poisonous snakes. And here in verse number six, again, he not only uses the labels himself, but he calls on his followers to differentiate between people and to respond to them accordingly. So, so the admonition of verses 1 through 5 still stands, and we need it. <clears throat> but it is also very important that we don't interpret verses 1 through 5 as if they forbid all forms of judging. There is a discrimination and there is a discernment that is called for. And this morning we want to explore what we can learn about the particular focus of verse 6. So who is the Lord talking about with this terminology of dogs and pigs? And I want to have you go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. And we're just going to look at several other passages where there's some characteristics given. The Lord doesn't explain it further in Matthew 7. But there are some other references to people as dogs elsewhere in the scripture. And in the Apostle Paul's ministry, I've had you turn to Philippians 3 because he's going to refer to a group of people. There's a group of people that followed close behind him, it seems, uh, nearly everywhere he went and attempted to, to hinder and undermine his ministry. They were called Judaizers. And they were people that would acknowledge at some level that people needed to express faith in Jesus. But they also stressed that to ensure that you really have a right relationship with God, that you really are justified, that you are righteous in the sight of God, we'd say that you are saved. To ensure your standing with God, you also have to be circumcised and keep other prescriptions of the Mosaic Law. Now, it's those people he has in mind with the warning of verse 2. If you notice Philippians 3 and verse 2, he says, Beware of, there it is, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. 
Beware of the concision, right? And that's not a word that we still use today. So um, some suggest you think of beware of false circumcision or mutilation or those who mutilate the flesh, right? The idea is those who demand a physical circumcision or other forms of physical discipline and deprivation as a sign of spirituality when there's actually no spiritual profit in the physical act at all. And notice what he goes on to say then in verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And in the flow again, what he's saying is saving faith is a matter of exclusive trust in the finished work of Christ, completely apart from merit-earning external activity, and anyone that teaches anything else is a what? They're a dog, and even an evildoer. It's no wonder that Paul had a number of passionate antagonists, right? But he's not unlike the Lord himself in using this kind of language. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And, and we're going to see another reference to, <coughs> excuse me, people as, as dogs. If 2 Peter 2, if you'll just look at verse 1, you can see Peter talking about false prophets. And he says there were false prophets in Israel in the Old Testament. <coughs> and he goes on to say there's going to be false teachers within the professing Christian church of our day. All right? These are people, again, that claim adherence to the Christian faith. Or they would never be in the middle of a Christian what? Okay? They wouldn't be in a Christian church if they hadn't at some point professed Christian faith. Okay? But after they have heard the truth and, and, and professed to embrace it, even adjusted their lifestyle, at least temporarily, to fit the profession and the new crowd, they eventually turn back. And I'm going to have, to have us come all the way down to verse 20 for time's sake. <clears throat> but notice how he, how he wraps up some of that discussion. Verse 20, he says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay? If after that, notice, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them but it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now you can see that Peter, Peter actually gets dogs and pigs in the same reference. And again, he does it in the most unflattering terms. Okay, today many of us have dogs that are not savage and not violent, but they are beloved family pets. And some of you know we tragically lost our beloved family pet on Christmas Day. 
And I missed, I actually missed her like crazy. I mean, there's probably not a day that goes by where I don't open the door and think about licorice not coming to meet us. Okay? Um, but I have never done, I've never done what my wife did. My wife would see licorice and she would say repeatedly, oh, you are so cute. You are so cute. <clears throat> and Boogie would sometimes even talk about licorice's wonderful ears, her nice soft ears that he would pull on and rub on. I never said that. I miss her, but I never once said about licorice, she's so cute. All right? But I will tell you this, that even those that made the glowing statements about licorice um, would <coughs> be repulsed at some of the habits that dogs have. <laughs> right? And all of you have family pets that you love that can still gross you out with some of their habits. That's what he's talking about here. Okay? And, and the backsliding that Peter is referring to it is dangerous, and it's very unflattering. Do you know that when people start to pull away from faithfulness to the assembling together with God's people, and they start returning back to their old worldly entertainments and worldly pleasures and worldly ways of thinking. They don't know where the slide is going to stop. And the warning, actually, of verses 20 and 21, he says their latter end is worse than at the beginning. And commentators talk and try to work around all of that, but, but it's hard to see anything short of ending up in hell after all. And it's hard to watch the process of backsliding at any level to observe someone who's heard the truth, has had enough basic understanding of it to adjust his life accordingly, and then to go ahead and, as it were, to thumb his nose to it and just smugly live his own life, his own way, his own way is like watching the unsavory acts of dogs and pigs. Another description that we find. And then, if you will, just turn forward to the book of Revelation and the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. And you know this is a chapter that begins with and really kind of picks up what was going on in chapter 21, and that is a, a continued description of the glories of heaven. But right in the midst of Talking about the glories of heaven, there's a very frank discussion of those who will not be there. And for our purposes in time, I'm going to jump right into verse 15. If you'll look there, Revelation 22 and verse 15. Without, without heaven is the, is the context. Without heaven are what? Dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So, brethren, the, the false teaching Judaizers are not well-meaning. They aren't full of sincere in, uh, intentions. The false teaching backsliders, you and I might, 
might feel inclined to kind of excuse at some level. But God doesn't. And while we greatly rejoice in, in themes of the mercy of God and the long-suffering of God towards the rebellion of his creatures and, and, and his continued offers of grace after multiple offers have already been refused, while we rejoice in all that, the theme of withdrawing light and ministry from those who have rejected is also not a small idea in the Bible. And I'm not going to have you turn to most of these references, but you can, you can jot them down if you'd like, or you could just listen. But in Matthew 10, the Lord commissioned the 12 for ministry. And in verse number 14, he said, Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Then Matthew 13, Jesus began to teach the multitude in parables. And if parables are explained, they can be very helpful forms of illustrating truth. But sometimes a parable can leave people obscure. The, the idea of obscure and leave people in the dark. Like, what do you mean by that? And when the disciples ask the Lord, why are you using something that's leaving people without understanding? The Lord actually said in verse 15, this people's heart is wax gross. Their ears are full of a dull of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. Je Jesus said they've already hardened their hearts, they've already stopped their ears, they've already closed their eyes, and my judgment on them is to actually leave them in that state. When Paul began his missionary labors, his initial contact in every town was with the Jews, and very often in their synagogue. But when the religious Jews in Antioch of Pisidia continued to oppose the gospel message in Acts 13 and verse 46, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God be first spoken unto you, but seeing you have put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's bold to tell a people. We came to you. We gave you opportunity. You've rejected. You've judged yourself unworthy. And we're done with you. We're going to the Gentiles. The same kind of thing happened in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 18 and verse 6. When they opposed and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From henceforth I go to the Gentiles. We read of similar dynamics in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. Paul was someone who could risk his life for the sake of the gospel. But Paul also displayed what it was to move on and to find people who would really listen. listen and he was not going to waste the one life he had ministering to people with hard hearts. And brethren, these dynamics are not just seen in, in missionary and evangelistic settings. I do want to have you turn to Titus. If you will look at Titus chapter 2. 
Actually, Titus chapter 3, I'm sorry. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. Notice these dynamics within a church, these realities within a church. Notice in verse 10, a man that is a heretic. And again, we have an older English word that kind of conjures up a different idea in our minds than that original word. That Greek word, and you may have this even from your Bible publishers, the Greek word is the word for schismatic. Or we would say divisive man. Someone who's stirring up division. And notice this. A man that is one of those who stirs up division after the first and second admonition do what? Reject. Brethren, the scripture puts a count on it. The scripture puts a boundary. And it does so so that you don't invest too much time and too much energy that should be spent elsewhere while you're trying to reason with someone that just will not be profitably reasoned with. You have tried, and you have tried again, but there's a boundary. And what it really gets down to is a, a question like this. Can you open a Bible? Can you observe a willingness for somebody with an open Bible to, to think through a Bible passage or, or relevant Bible passages? And is, do you see any kind of a heart to submit to what the Scripture says and, and the weight of emphasis the Scripture gives to it? You know, if somebody is just going to resort to, well, the way I like to see it is. Okay. Or, or somebody actually says, well, I refuse to think of God in those terms. Okay. Or, or somebody says, I refuse to believe that this is what God would ask of me to do. Okay. Or somebody just kind of seizes on a phrase in the Bible. And, and, and they will not let their interpretation of that phrase be critiqued by the context, by, by cross-referencing. There's a point at which there's just really nothing more you can do. And, and if you actually persist with some of those people, okay, you can just inflame the situation. They will not listen to you. And what you say to them is going to be misquoted and it's going to be twisted to the point that it would have been better for you to say nothing because they're going to, I know we're not there in Matthew 7, but they're going to turn again and do what? Do you remember what it says? Don't cast your pearls before the swine because they will turn again and, and rend you. I one time talked with a brother of some national prominence. If I mention him, I would say at least 75% of you would know who I'm talking about. But I, I had taken note of the fact that he had withdrawn some 
uh, from some brethren that he previously had a, a fair amount of fellowship with. I had actually been in settings where some of these brethren were together. Okay. In ministry, out to eat, all kinds of stuff. And I saw, okay, they don't have much contact with each other anymore. And I just kind of, I said, hey, what's up there? And, and his response was to say that he really thinks they are probably very sincere. But he said, I just could not get them to sit down with an open Bible and, and talk about relevant texts of Scripture to, you know, where we were differing. And he said, at some point I just had to conclude that it would be best to just appreciate them for their strengths from a distance. Now, now, obviously, he had a more charitable viewpoint towards his brother, and I think it was appropriate. He didn't use words like dogs and pigs. But I think he still captured something of the spirit of the Lord's teaching in this text. And, brother, I think we know this. Don't we know this at every realm of life? I can remember which one of my boys it was, and I'm not going to point it out right now. But when they were younger, one of them said, Dad, let's go play catch. Can we please play catch? And it was catch with a football. Okay? And they were little. But I was trying to tell them how to hold a football right and throw the football right. And they had not been listening, not been listening, not been listening, not been listening. And I said, I will go play catch with you if you hold the thing right and throw it right. But I'm not going out there for a bunch of nonsense. And you know what happened? We went out to the front yard. They held the football right and threw the thing the right way. It was like, okay, we got attention. You know what that's like, don't you? To work with people at all levels. I'm willing to do whatever, but I am not going to invest my time if all you're doing is nonsense. And there's something of that dynamic the Lord is pointing to even when it comes to ministry, we have limited time. We have limited energy. We have limited resources. And he's calling on us to think about where we're spending them. Now, I do want to have you turn back to Matthew. But if you will, stop in Matthew chapter 15. I do think there is a reference here that is helpful to us at a certain level in in applying what we're looking at this morning. And we're going to look at another reference at dogs. And it's still shocking, but, but this one is encouraging at the same time. If you'll look, if you're there, chapter 15, at verse 22, Jesus is approached by a Canaanite woman. You see that, a woman of Canaan. And she had a daughter possessed with a demon. She, she asked for mercy Jesus actually acted like he didn't hear her. She was so tenacious, though, about it, the disciples actually came to Jesus and said, would you please do something about this woman? She won't leave us alone. All right? And she makes another direct appeal in verse number 25. All right? And now look at his response in verse 26. He answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And the implication is he's treating her like she's what? And notice what she said. She said, truth, Lord. I agree with that analogy. Yet the dogs eat 
of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Verse 28, Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. I've, I've had to stop here because there may be people that you have previously thought was outside of the reach of real ministry. Outside of the reach of the gospel and outside of the reach of truth. But it is always worth a shot at giving them truth. If they will humble themselves to accept the condemnation, and I mean, the Jesus just called her a dog. And she said, okay, I agree. But shouldn't you have mercy even to someone like me? And I'll take it. And sometimes there are people that you think, I don't know what the point is. But I'm going to give it at least one more shot. And you just declare the truth. And if you do that, and they will humble themselves, you are likely looking at a real trophy of the grace of God. And I don't have time this morning, but I actually have in my notes uh, a name of somebody I thought. Now, I have witnessed to him multiple times, and I don't know what the point is. He had scheduled a meeting, and I just said, I'm going to give it this one more shot. And God humbled the man, and he's living for the Lord today, decades later. What we're going to need as we consider then all of the relevant themes is we're going to need great wisdom from the Lord that comes with much time spent walking with the Lord in the light of his word so that we practice discernment correctly. Because we could practice it in a way that we nearly bite and devour and consume one another, right? And yet the Bible still calls for discernment. And, and I know, again, we've been out of our series for several weeks, but I just want to remind us that in this sermon, in this Sermon on the Mount, right, chapters 5, 6, and 7, <clears throat> this sermon is about the marks or the characteristics of true citizens of Christ's kingdom. And one of the marks of the true citizens of Christ's kingdom is that they practice discernment about false teaching and false teachers and even backsliders from within their own ranks. Okay, true citizens of Christ's kingdom, when they encounter false teaching and false teachers and backsliders who are influencing others away, they don't just say things like, oh, who am I to judge? to dismiss the responsibility of making hard decisions about relationships and, again, about where they invest their time and energies. And, and they're even willing to ruffle some feathers if that's what it takes to mark and confront falsehood and compromise that is making inroads and doing damage. They're willing to if it comes to it not be liked 
because they've taken truth and exposed error. And may God give us grace to avoid hypocritical judgment that can be so damaging on one side. But may God also give us the courage and strength and wisdom to exercise healthy judgment on the other hand and in both cases to do it for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I want to give opportunity for a minute or two here of just personal, private reflection. You, you may be like I gave testimony to that in the simple review of the first five verses, you may say, oh Lord, I need that again. But it may be that we also need the strengthening ministry of the word to practice discernment where there really is gospel truth at stake. There, there really is danger and risk at stake. And maybe there's some perplexity and you really just have to cry out and say, Lord, just help me to know where should I be investing. Let me not give up on somebody or some situation prematurely. But let me be instructed by your word that there are boundaries 